Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Well, that fits right in with what we're uh, talking about today. We're thinking about what it means to find healing for our habits. And so uh, I, I just think for, you know, to kind of think in broad terms, first of all, about the fact that for a lot of us, there's a lot of things that go on in our heads that never see the light of day. Sometimes that's a really good thing, and then other times it's not quite as good. I love this quote by Lauren Miracle. I live in my own little world, but it's okay. They know me here. I think that's so true of all of us. We live in our own little world, but it's okay. They know me here. They get me here. God gets me. Everybody understands, you know. In my own head, I make perfect sense. In my own head, my choices, my habits, my behaviors, my attitudes, the things I choose to do, the things I don't choose to do, they all make perfect sense in my own head. They might not make the same amount of sense out there in the broader scope. I, I'm not sure people actually see me the way I see myself. I'm not sure the things that go on in my head translate very well into the real world. And so I, I think we, we gather around the word today and we kind of think about this. I want to I recall for you a quote that we shared a few weeks ago, but one that I think is so prevalent and, and, and applicable in our, in our uh, culture today. Uh, Henry David Thoreau said, there are a thousand hacking at the branches of evil to everyone who is striking at the root. There are a thousand hacking at the branches of evil to everyone who is striking at the root. So I, I think if you kept those two quotes in your head, I live in my own little world, but they know me here. Uh, there are a thousand people hacking at the branches of virtue for everyone striking at the root. There are a thousand people hacking at the branches of goodness for everyone that's actually trying to get down to the root of what causes things. And so we're sort of gathering around that and thinking about it. It's the season of Lent. We're really focused in and thinking about this uh, reality that part of the imagery of this season is the lengthening of days. The sun is out more. And by the way, if you, if you haven't gotten on board yet, next Sunday you better spring forward. Uh, if you don't spring forward on Saturday night before you go to bed, uh, you'll be watching this uh, recorded instead of live because... Uh, uh, we're we're going to lose an hour this week, so start planning ahead uh, for how that works. And as we get into these longer days, uh, the celebration of Lent reflects around that fact. The sun is out longer. It's doing its work. Uh, it's bringing life out of the dormant and dead things of winter. And so this Lenten season uh, from a spiritual side is that. We lengthen. Uh, we relax. We sort of allow God to work in us. We're not doing tons of work. We're just trying to make ourselves available so that the sun can bring to life things in us that are dormant and have been dead. So John Wesley had this idea about spirituality. And so before we kind of get any further into that conversation, I want you to kind of think about John Wesley as a guy who really struggled with his inner world, and he struggled with how that inner world translated into real-world behavior. Uh, he was a, a, a kind of a, a, a tortured soul in many ways. 
tried to figure out. Raised in a, a great Christian home, his dad was an Anglican priest. Uh, his mother, you know, is probably the poster child for all great mothers in history, Susanna Wesley. Um, and so uh, if you ever want to feel bad about yourself, you can just kind of read her biography and the things that she did on behalf of her children. And, um, but, but Wesley growing up in that environment was a tortured soul. He couldn't figure out how to find peace in his heart, how to live in his spirituality. And so he searched and searched, and it occurred to him that uh, as he struggled to live this life, that, that maybe there was a simpler image. And he gained that image from Mark chapter 12, uh, verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked him of all the commandments, which one is the most important? And the most important one, Jesus answered, is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. And, and something clicked with him as he listened to that. And, and what he started to think about was an image, and the image was, what if I were to fill up my heart with just the love of God? What if I really love the Lord my God with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, and all my strength, I would think that there would be no more room for anything else, that I would, at that point, have displaced any other affections. And so he began to work with that idea, and he began to sort of, for him it captured a simple idea. If I were to fill up my life and fill up my heart with good habits, then they, they would necessarily push aside all the bad habits. There wouldn't be room for lots of other things. And so this idea of love displacing, love pushing aside good things, pushing aside lesser things, became a real mantra for, for Wesley. In fact, it started to shape now his whole theology and vision of life and spirituality. Not very long after that revelation, he, he formed out of students at Oxford University what came to be known as the Holy Club. And, and the Holy Club was committed to this one idea, this idea that we're going to fill up our hearts, our spirits, our minds, but also our strength with good things. And so the Holy Club was a sign. If you were going to be in the Holy Club, you had to read the Word every day. You had to be committed to prayer every day. And you had to do acts of a kindness for the people around you, and especially you had to minister to the poor uh, in highly segregated and class-structured England of the 18th century. Uh, this was a revolutionary idea that the privileged people at university would make their way into the prisons and into the streets and into the poor houses and into the debtors' prisons and into those spaces in which people hurt. But Wesley theorized and understood and believed for himself that it was his calling to fill up his life with such things and to invite others to fill up their lives with such good things that it would spill out and push aside and displace everything else. Now, when, when, when we start to think about that and we start to get that moving in our, uh, our heads, I, I just want to come back to this. It seems to me that we live in our own little world, but it's okay. They know us here. That for most of us, our spirituality is confined to sort of part of that call. It's confined to that idea that says to love the Lord with all my heart or my mind or my spirit. 
that, that, that somehow for most of Christianity in the world, that, that Christianity is confined to something going on in this inner world, in this place where I live, closed off from everyone else, where I define what I believe spirituality is, where I live it in such a way that I believe I'm doing okay, but there isn't that last part of the strength part, the physical aspect, to love the Lord with all your strength, all the physical aspect of your body, to be engaged in habits that are edifying to you, edifying to those with whom we share relationships edifying to our community, edifying to the world. If there's ever been a situation and a circumstance, a time in history when the church is suffering from this, this religion of the brain instead of a faith that is concrete, that, that makes a positive difference in the world, it's this day and age in which we live. And Wesley was centering himself and thinking about and, and trying to understand how you might be moving closer to God instead of away from Him, that you would have habits in your life. And I, I think this is a, a pretty good question to ask here. How many things are you doing that you believe draw you closer into a relationship with God and into a spiritual life that manifests beneficially for people around you and how many habits are you engaged in that are more damaging to your inner world, that push you further from God, that are more destructive to the people around you? And that can be any variety of things. It doesn't have to be moral issues, just habits, just things we do. The Bible clearly teaches us this relationship between what's going on inside of us and what's coming out of us. It's talked about most often in terms of fruit. Matthew 7, 15, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, good trees bear good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. I live in my own little world, but it's okay. They know me here. For every person, for every thousand that are striking at the branches of evil, only a few are getting to the root. For so many of us, our spirituality occurs inside of us. It occurs up in our head. And if we were to survey the people with whom we're sharing the journey, and, they, and, they were to, and we were to say, uh, here's the scale, here's the grading scale. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. This is the grading scale. <laughs> if you were to hand that scale to your children or to your spouse, are, are, are to your neighbors or to the people you work with or, are, are, you know, your parents or your friends, and you were to say, how am I doing on a scale of one to ten? How am I doing in the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? How am I doing? Because in here, in my own little world where they know me, I'm crushing it. I'm killing it. But I'm not sure what the fruit is. I'm not sure if the grape bush is bearing grapes, if the fig tree is bearing figs. I'm not sure if what's coming out is the same thing that I think is going on inside of me. 
Jesus is always connecting the beliefs of a person with the results of those beliefs in the very real world. So when the devout young Jewish ruler comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Matthew 6, 19, 16. He says to him, listen, you got to keep the commandments. You, you got to do all that spiritual stuff. This I have done since my youth. One thing you lack, sell everything you have and go give it to the poor. And he goes away sad. And, and so Jesus is intimately connecting. I mean, you can almost hear it. <laughs> What do I have to do to inherit? you got to keep all of the commandments. I live in my own world, but don't worry. They know me here. I, I've kept them all. Up in my head, I've kept them all. I'm getting, I'm crushing it. I'm doing it all right. All right. So let's get out of your head for a minute, and let's get in the real world. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Well, that's, I, I'm more comfortable with my spirituality remaining in my brain. I'm much more comfortable with the spiritual life in my inner world than I am with starting to think that my actual behaviors have to change around the values of the kingdom of God, that I have to live this thing out in real time. Because in my head, I'm just being human. In my head, I'm just doing my best. I'm just getting along in a world that's all messed up. So those beliefs are not just implied, they're explicit. Jesus says in Matthew 7, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise person who builds their lives on solid rock. But whoever hears these words of mine and does not put them in practice is like a foolish person who builds their life on stands. The winds come, the rain falls, and the house falls flat. We're told in the Old Testament that this can work in reverse. Isaiah 29 the Lord says, these people come near me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship to me is based merely on human rules. And I think we do both things. I think we have this vivid inner world that doesn't always translate into the kingdom of God alive on earth. And then I think we also have spiritual tokens. It's virtue signaling. We do some things that look spiritual, but our hearts are a long way from where our bodies, our bodies may take us to church, but our hearts aren't necessarily there. I, I, I've been having this thought during this pandemic, and so it's, this is free. This isn't in the sermon, but it just hit me that maybe we ought to talk about it. Um, I, I just reflect on the fact that as a staff, we, we pray, work, think, invest in what happens in this moment. You know, we go away, we pray together, we, we think together, we strategize together, we, we, we think about where God is leading us, we think about what the Word is teaching us, we invest ourselves, we study, we write, we prepare, we craft services, we put music and worship and, and ideas and concepts together and, 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 you know, art and all the things that go into it. And I, and I wonder, because it's not uncommon for me to hear somebody say, well, I'm just not feeling it. I'm just not getting it. You know, I didn't, it didn't do it for me. And, and I wonder, what if the whole congregation invested in preparing for a weekend? What, what if every one of us, we're not just going to come in and sit down and be consumers, but we said, you know what? God's doing something, and I'm a part of something. And I better get ready. I better get my heart in the right place and my mind in the right place and my spirit in the right place because evidently God's bringing some stuff together for me to hear and partake of. But if I'm not ready, 
if my heart's not ready, if I'm not ready to listen, if I'm distracted by a hundred other things, then I might not get what God has for me. But you know and I know exactly what happens. Exactly what happens is somebody sends me an email and says, you know, you guys need to work a little harder. (laughs) Well, maybe we do. And I believe we always ought to. But maybe we all ought to work a little harder. Because this thing about our spirituality just... It just exists in this little space inside of us, and we go through the motions, but we're not really connected to the source. I think that's what Peter is writing about. He's challenging. Remember, he's speaking to a group of people who are going through real struggles. They're they're facing persecution and, and hardship and difficulty, and so he's writing them a letter to say, here's what's appropriate. Here is the appropriate way for people to behave, conduct becoming Christians in a world where it's hard to do that. Listen to what he writes, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, and then we'll skip some digression talk in the middle and go to, to verse 9. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you've tasted that the Lord is good, as you come to Him, the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to Him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. But you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of His darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits you. Now, I said this last week. It feels to me like Peter and the other New Testament writers, James and, 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 and Paul especially, They are having these discussions together, and the nature of their conversations revolve around this theology that is forming in the early church, so much so that the language that Peter is using here in chapter 2 is so reflective of, of Paul. In fact, vocabulary, we talked about this last week, but the vocabulary used here is exactly the same as what Paul uses in Colossians 3. But now, you must also rid yourselves. See how he started that? You must rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Don't lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and you put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. So if I were to just say to you, here's the deal. (laughs) We're talking about in this Lenten season how... We might find healing for our habits. And I think it's a two-way thing. I think, number one, we want to rid ourselves of some old habits that are not serving well. Even if they make sense in our own head, we want to offer ourselves and allow God to to maybe take some of those old habits and begin to push them out. And we're going to displace them with some new habits. 
we're going to put on some things and some practices that are going to leave very little room for those old behaviors. Now, I, I know immediately that it's like, yeah, that sounds like a lot of work. It is a lot of work. It is hard to live a spirituality that is more than virtue signaling, that is more than hacking at the branches, but getting down to the roots of things. It's hard. It's difficult. If you're not sure what to get rid of, both Peter and Paul have some ideas, and, and there are parallel items in the list. Let's talk about a few of them. We ought to get rid of all malice. Now, Peter uses that Greek word in the broadest term. So let's see if we can do a little exercise to get connected to, to what he's talking about. I'd like for you to close your eyes, take a deep breath, and then I just want you to think about the world, and I want to see how many times as you think about the things as I say them out loud, you, something inside you says, that's not okay. So just that's the whole thing. Just going to do a little experiment. So you can close your eyes, you can take a deep breath. So how do you feel about yourself? How do you feel about where you are in your spiritual journey? How do you feel after a year of, of being in isolation from COVID? How do you feel about your physical appearance and your health? How do you feel about your relationships with others? How do you feel about the politics that are going on in the country? How do you feel about the decisions that are getting made with vaccines and not to have a vaccine and when to get a vaccine and who gets the vaccines? How do you feel about the stimulus checks? How do you feel about the climate of the culture? All right, you can stop now. How many times in there did you have something inside of you say, well, that's, that's not okay? There's a lot of things about that that caused me a little anxiety, a little, a little tension in my inner world. So, so what Peter is using, how he's using this word is simply to say, listen, what happens to human beings is that inside of them, they begin to think are not okay, that there's something that's not okay. And when they feel that there's something that's not okay, they have a decision to make about how they deal with what's not okay. And how the natural thing to do is respond to things that are not okay with malice. That, that's the natural thing to do. To begin to speak about, talk about, feel angry, feel, feel you know, like bitterness, to feel upset, to feel... He says the natural response is this malice that retaliates. The natural thing when things are not going as we feel they should, and I would challenge us to, I can't imagine a minute in our lives where we think everything's okay. And so he's just saying, listen, don't respond with malice. Don't respond in a way where you give back to people around you what they are giving you. Here's what distresses me. We are living in a culture and a climate of absolute meanness. It's absolute meanness. And I don't see much difference between the way Christians are responding and anyone else. We may think the things that are not okay are different than other people think things are not okay, but, but that's not the point. 
Thinking things are not okay is an internal spirituality. How we respond to them is how our fruit gets born in the world. And our attitude matters. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, faithfulness, and self-control. Anything else is malice. It's malice. And both Peter and Paul are saying, listen, we could probably throw Mary in there somewhere for you older people. We are saying together, listen, we're not responding in malice. Get rid of all malice. And then he says, get rid of all deceit. Get rid of all deceit. By the way, you can do this in your head. <laughs> what would you offer instead of malice? What habit would you put in to displace malice? How about grace? How about kindness? I mean, when you feel like you're going to respond in malice, and listen, the words of our mouth matter. The words of our mouths matter. And this is true on both sides of this, because there's a lot of Christians that are left-leaning, there's a lot of Christians that are right-leaning. Listen, when you think you're the smartest person in the room, you better check yourself. <laughs> Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And we're invited into a place where we allow grace and kindness to displace our malice. Number two, deceit. We need to get rid of deceit. That's the habit where we use all kinds of trickery to get what we want. Now, listen, we have become so good at this. Like if I want something, I'm very rarely going to just say what I want. I'm going to kind of do, if I need to ignore someone because I want their attention, then I, I know who I need to ignore. I know who responds to what sort of stimulation. I, I, I get, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> I get it. It wasn't that long ago that, you know, we didn't know anything about the world of advertising and marketing. It was, that was an unknown quantity. I mean, marketing and advertising used to be, uh, literally, if you go back and you look at, uh, you know, the early 1900s, if you look at a newspaper ad, this is literally what advertising was. We have soap. Literally, it's just telling you that the store has this in stock right now. That's all it was. Uh, but that's developed into an art form. I, I don't know about you, but you know, sometimes it's, you watch a commercial and you feel so good, but you don't even know what the commercial's about. You, it's, it's not about anything. It, finally, at the end, it's like, oh, buy a car. Oh, <laughs> you know. But here's the thing that's distressing. That kind of marketing, that kind of promotion, that used to be exclusively for professionals trying to sell a product. Today, we have all become experts at marketing ourselves. We present ourselves on social media in the way we think is most advantageous for us to get what we want. And that's exactly the word that Peter is using here. He's using a word that says people want stuff, but instead of saying what they want and thinking about the merit of what they want and thinking about should they want that or not and thinking about how to go about obtaining that, we just sort of do all kinds of deceptive things hoping that because we're doing them, then we'll get out of life and out of others some kind of self-worth, some kind of self-affirmation. And maybe instead of being people of deceit, we become people of authenticity. It's incredibly vulnerable, and it's incredibly rare. It's incredibly rare to sit in space with somebody that says, I really don't know the answers to a lot of things. I'm struggling and I'm trying and I, I think I believe this and I think I believe that and I'm 
I'm trying to apply God's Word in my journey and in my life. Maybe instead of deceit, we, we engage in the habit of authenticity. Number three, and you, you'll notice how these all dovetail together. He says, get rid of all hypocrisy. <laughs> We're going to get rid of malice and deceit and hypocrisy. And there's a temptation in that to go, well, those are all kind of the same thing. I mean, you know... The word hypocrisy, while you may you know, not understand its modern application, maybe you don't know where it came from. The very first application image of hypocrisy were people who give answers. That was the earliest, uh, that was applied earliest to that understanding. People who give answers are practicing hypocrisy. It doesn't mean they were false in the beginning. It just means the word was originally associated with people who gave answers. And then it, got, it started to be associated with the theater and it was a specific time in the life of the theater. The actors and actresses would come onto the stage at the end of a production and they would answer questions from the audience. Now, I want you to get your head around this. They were answering questions about the make-believe roles they had been playing. They were giving answers about a make-believe story and a make-believe role they had been playing. And the third application and image of the word as it developed was that the, that the actors escaped the theater. The actors escaped the theater, and then they began to walk up and down the streets giving answers for the roles that were make-believe. I, I think that's our whole culture right now. I think our whole culture is, is hacking at the branches of evil instead of trying to get to the root of the problem. The root of the problem is, is that in here, when things are not okay, I get angry and I practice malice towards others. And I, I practice deceitful ways of getting what I think I need and what I think I want. And I do it in the smallest of ways. We do it with our kids. You want a cookie? Give me a hug. <laughs> you, you want this? You know, that, that. It's all a negotiation. And there's a hypocrisy. We, we live in a world full of people giving answers about stories that don't exist and characters that don't exist but acting like the play is real and experts and answering questions. But there's nothing back there but a made-up story. And we see it over and over and over. And maybe instead of hypocrisy, Christians ought to be practicing a kind of transparency. Number four is envy. Envy. We see that others have it better than we do. Well, people are so good at self-marketing now that, that there's a lot of envy. I think we're starting to understand that, you know, what's posted in social media is probably not reality, but envy still drives us in a big way. We believe others have it better. We're not getting our share. Even the disciples practice this kind of stuff. They're so, the disciples are so worried that John is going to get something that they're not going to get. At the, at the evening of the Last Supper, they won't wash each other's feet because they're arguing among themselves about who will be greatest in the kingdom. Envy. Not getting our share. Other people having it better than we do. Is the content of our heart and the content of our conversation centered around how unfair the world is? Because any one of us could be plucked up out of our comfortable little place of living and plunked down in a part of the world where suddenly we would realize that about 95% of the world lives much more difficultly than we do. 
And yet somehow we find it in our hearts to envy one another. To be up in arms about the billionaires or whoever it is. To be people that believe we don't experience great wealth as we drive down paved streets and walk on sidewalks that are lit up at night and hold our iPhones and watch our live streaming television on our 60-inch screens. Envy. And our spirituality is not supposed... I live in my own world, but it's okay. They know me here. They may know you there. But there's a whole other criteria for grading and understanding life. And it's not just what's going on in our own heads that matter or in our own circle of friends, which, by the way, we carefully choose and weed out the ones who disagree with us so that it's comfortable for us. Envy. Maybe instead of envy, we add the habit of gratitude. And then finally, he says slander. (laughs) The word can be translated gossip. The Greek literally means speaking evil, and it is often done when people are not present. Listen, this is a big one. I don't know what it is, but for some reason, people love to gossip. They just get a lot of energy out of it. William Barclay writes these words about this passage. Few things are so attractive as hearing or repeating spicy gossip. Disparaging gossip is something which everyone admits to be wrong and which at the same time almost everybody enjoys. And yet there's nothing more likely to produce heartbreak and there is nothing so destructive to the mutual love and Christian unity than this act of gossip or slander. Listen. We live in our own little world, but they know us here. That is no excuse for speaking ill of others. It is no excuse for allowing the malice, when our hearts say it's not okay, to to, to respond in malice that then leads us into a place of deceit, hypocrisy, answering questions about things that are neither true nor real or that we don't know about. And moving us into space where we envy and then we slander others because it's what they deserve. We're just telling the truth. We're just saying it like it is. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. And we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It is supposed to get into the physical world in which we live and move. And then finally, he sums it up by saying, and in fact, just get rid of all sinful desires. Just get rid of all sinful desires. He, the Greek is a little more vivid. It says all fleshly de- desires. So, so anything that has to do with a temporary existence, go ahead and, and just put those down on the bottom shelf. The need for status, the need for security, the need for wealth, the need for, for beauty, the need for sexual fulfillment, whatever appetite you're feeding that is about a, a temporary thing. And here's the astonishing thing. 
The astonishing thing is, it is when we are pursuing these insatiable appetites that we really begin then to practice the malice, the deceit, the hypocrisy, the slander, and the envy. This is when they come to life, when our appetites are focused on the wrong things that we can't ever quite get enough of, then all of these other things come to life in us in very powerful and vivid ways. We're being misused because we can't get to those things. We can't get satisfied enough. And so we live a dissatisfied life. And then we're resentful. And then we're angry. And then we're mean. And then we're envious. And on and on it goes. Well, he sums it up this way. He has started the conversation by saying this, crave pure spiritual milk. Listen, pure spiritual milk says, I'm going to be absolutely honest with myself about where I am and who I am. I'm going to measure my life not by what I think is going on in my head, but by the fruit of my life. And I'm going to own it. If the fruit's bitter, you know, I'm not going to hide from it. I'm going to confess it. I'm going to let God forgive me. I'm going to try to root out the old habits and put new ones in its place. I'm going to change my behavior so that things will be different in my journey. I'm going to crave spiritual, pure spiritual milk. It's a lot easier to drink other things that allow us to coexist more comfortably with the lives around us. So he says, I want you to drink pure spiritual milk. I want you to crave it. And then he says, I want you to remember this. You are a holy people. You are living stones being built into a spiritual house. It matters how we act. It matters what happens inside of us. It matters of all people that our spirituality is not limited to this inner world, that it gets out of us because we are being built into a spiritual house. If you just had that image, how, how many spiritual, how, how many churches do you believe are getting built into a spiritual house that people drive by and go, wow, that looks great? Or how many churches do you believe are getting built up into a, a spiritual house where you drive by and go, wow? That's a mess. I'm not sure who did that carpentry work, but it stinks. There's not a single thing that's measured well. There's not a single thing that's painted well. The cosmetics don't work. The design isn't good. It's, 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 it's asymmetrical. It's just, it's just a mess. We're building something. And, and, and as we grow together into the head that is Christ, we, we're building beautiful spiritual houses. We're a holy people, a royal priesthood. That's Peter's plea. That's what he's talking about. That's what he's asking for. The band's going to come back, and we're going to close here with communion. And again, as we think about it, what, a, what an important time for us to have a chance to say, you know, God, as I prepare my heart for this table, and I participate in these elements that, that represent pure spiritual milk, then I, I'm going to ask that you hear my heart as I repent, as I confess some things that don't work quite right and aren't quite right. And I'm just going to prepare my heart, and then I'm going to ask you, and, and even I love this imagery, I, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to welcome you physically into my body so that maybe you could displace some things that have been there. So I'm just going to invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes, and we're going to pray together. God, we give you thanks. We're thankful for your word that calls us into a place of accountability. 
And I pray that while we sometimes think about the fact that we live in our own little world, but it's okay, they know us here. Would you remind us that the measure of our life is not how we think we are doing? That the measure of our life is testified by the fruit of our lives? And so I pray that you would, in these moments, as we celebrate the Lenten season and we lengthen and we stretch out and we invite the sun to do work in us, to bring to life things that are dormant, as we celebrate a season of repentance in which we really would like to get a lot of dead stuff out, we confess to you habits. And if we struggle to know what those habits might be, we get help. And Peter makes a list, malice. We're angry about so many things. Upset. Deceit. We want stuff. We're not always honest about it. We market our own lives and our own perspectives. Hypocrisy. We're busy answering questions about make-believe worlds and make-believe characters. When if we were really honest, we don't know a lot about what we're talking about. We don't know who's right and who's wrong. We, we want to apply your word in the very best way we know how, but we do it humbly and recognizing that our own prejudices and how we were brought up has so much to do with what we see. It's our own little world, but they know us here. We want to offer that hypocrisy to you. And envy. We're envious of so many things in so many situations, and maybe we should displace that envy with just gratitude for the ways, incredible ways in which you've blessed our lives. Slander. Of all the things we should set aside in this kingdom of God as we're being built as a holy people into a living house, we ought to be people who say no evil against others. who instead practice edifying words, words that build up and unite attitudes that draw people in instead of push them away. How will people ever come to know you and know your saving grace and know the call of your kingdom and the holiness of your character if we continue to represent the world and faith as a mirror image of malice and slander and hypocrisy and deceit. A mirror image. We're just practicing things we believe are right, but doing it with an attitude that is unbecoming to the kingdom of God. Forgive us and all those other sinful desires. They're in us. We're not talking about chopping at the branches. We're asking you to change the root. We confess our sin to you and ask you to give us new birth, new life. The old gone, 
We recognize that at the root of it all is a, a kind of sinful selfishness that only the power of God can cure. And so we confess it to you today. We prepare our hearts for this table. Across this great community and even around the world, as we gather in this moment, you know the elements that have been brought forward. Humble elements, maybe they're not the perfect ones, but your grace invites us to bring what we have. Five loaves, two fishes. And you are able to bless and break and create a miracle. So we dedicate these elements to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was broken for you, preserve you blameless unto everlasting life. Take and eat in remembrance that Christ died for you. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for you, preserve you blameless unto everlasting life. Take and drink in remembrance that Christ died for you, and be thankful. And now, God, would you hear our response to your word? Would you allow us across this community and world to simply offer to you these moments of worship? as we reflect on who you are and on your grace and on your word. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. And everybody said together, amen. Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.